0: Thanks, Larry. Well, after I graduated from university, I moved everything back into my parents' home and I started looking for a job. And I'm pretty sure this is exactly what my parents were dreaming of when they sent me to university and so they got what they wished for. And I found a job pretty quick. I found it just after I read the sports section in the newspaper because the classifieds were right after that section. And I found my first job was selling cars at a Volkswagen dealership. Now, I didn't have any experience in the auto industry. I didn't have many qualifications as a salesman. But I drove a Volkswagen, so I figured that couldn't help me. My Volkswagen was a 1972 Beetle. But I thought this might show that I was loyal to the Volkswagen brand. And sure enough, I found a way to get myself hired, and I started my first job. But my sales manager, while he seemed to like me, he, uh, he wouldn't let me talk to any customers for my first week on the job. He just had me sit in a chair with a desk, and my job for the first four or five days of employment was to sit there and to read about all the different makes and models and cars that I was supposed to then sell to people. So I just sat there like I had some sort of disease. And then the weekend came, and of course in The auto industry, the weekends, that's the big time when you're doing your work as a salesperson. So the weekend came, and they decided, all right, maybe you aren't all that unclean after all. And so they paired me with a seasoned salesman and said, go off, and hopefully you don't do anything stupid. And amazingly, this guy and I, we sold like a couple of cars that weekend. And it almost felt too easy. Like I would just say, hey... Are you looking for a car? My name's Keith. And I'd smile and we'd start talking. And then the seasoned guy, he would like say, you want to buy this car? Let's talk numbers. And all of a sudden, the sales manager gave us some papers. People signed. And I said, hey, I'm getting a commission. This isn't all that bad of a gig. But, of course, some deals weren't that easy. And I learned as the weeks went on that there was much more difficult things to do as a car salesman. Part of the challenge was the negotiation process. I quickly learned that, that people wanted to get a good deal. They wanted to figure out what they could get, how they could squeeze any last penny out of the dealership that they could. And so they're always asking questions. They're always looking for opportunities. How much can I get on my used vehicle here? Is there any way you can upgrade the sound system? Why in the world does Volkswagen only have two cup holders? That was one thing I could, I, that was like the biggest question that I got asked. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I can't do anything to get eight cup holders here in the Volkswagen. I can't help you with that. But there was always negotiations. There was always the question of what can be changed? What can you do for me? How can we get this deal done? Well, about six months after I began selling cars, I began taking courses in seminary. And for most people, this seems like a pretty big change. And admittedly, I thought that it was but I had a professor who forced me to think otherwise. This professor of mine thought selling a car was the same thing as preaching a sermon. Now, he didn't say it exactly in these words, but in a sense, he said the objective of a preacher and the objective of a salesperson is essentially the same thing. Get someone to buy. You're selling a message to them. You're selling a product to them. And this comparison has always troubled me a little bit. I don't Completely disagree with it, but I'm not completely buying it either. And as I thought about this message earlier in the week of selling the gospel, a verse came to my mind. It happened to be the Bible memory challenge verse of last week. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. But even more significant, then this verse is what we read from the Apostle Paul and what was just read. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it continues into the middle part of chapter 2. If Paul is really trying to sell a message, if he's really trying to be persuasive to to the people who are reading his his letter about uh, following Jesus, about living out this gospel message, then he does a terrible job of it. Like, he's a brutal salesman. Because instead of catering to what they want— instead of bending and negotiating and compromising just a little bit, instead of speaking to their language even, he almost seems to go in the opposite direction. He holds his ground. He gets preachy. We can almost feel his emotion jump off the pages of our Bible. And what seems to set him off is one word, a simple word. It's a very nice-sounding word. In Greek, it's pronounced Sophia. Lovely word, right? Great name for a girl. In English, it's translated as wisdom, which is something that I find myself praying for all the time. It's something that, as we think about the biblical story, it, it's a big theme. And we hear about a number of characters who have wisdom or act foolishly in the opposite way, or, or people that are, are equipped with wisdom. We think of King Solomon, uh, who is told by God that he can ask for basically anything, and, and he asks for wisdom. And God is greatly pleased. He didn't ask for riches or power or territory. He wanted wisdom, and so he is given wisdom. Isn't wisdom a spiritual gift that we'll read about later on in 1 Corinthians? Isn't it given for the purpose of building up and equipping the church? Isn't Jesus described in Luke's gospel as a young boy who then grows and matures in wisdom and in stature as he reaches adulthood? Isn't wisdom a good thing? What's Paul's beef with wisdom? Well, from what we can tell, Paul understands wisdom from two different angles. There's human wisdom, and there's wisdom that comes from God. And even within this text, sometimes the lines between the two can be a little bit blurred. And it's certainly blurred in our lives when we think about acting with wisdom, acting with our own intellect and our own intuition and what makes logical, rational sense to us, and acting as God would lead us, which many times are one and the same, but sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Let's read what Paul writes, beginning in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul suggests that the cross is foolishness to people who are perishing, which is his way of describing those who don't believe. They're in a constant state of dying because they're choosing not to embrace life. It's like they're dying of thirst even though Jesus is right next to them extending a cup of refreshing water to them. And by contrast, there's also people who are being saved. And once again, this is described as being active and continuous. It's not that they were saved or have been saved. They are being saved. And we understand with these people is that they are being saved because they realize that the cross is not foolishness at all, but it's evidence of the very power of God. Now, many of us don't think of the cross as an example of foolishness, but as the symbol of Christianity. Christianity. The Christian's cross is one of the most powerful and well-known symbols that we have in our world. Many of us have known this symbol since we were children. I mean, it's right up there with with, uh, the Nike swoosh, with the Olympic rings, with the golden arches. It's highly recognizable, the Christian cross. But in the first century, it was also a highly recognizable symbol, but for very different reasons. When we think about the cross based from their perspective... It was the symbol of a death sentence. It was humiliation. It was torture. It was the power of the Roman state. It was finality. It was hopelessness. So the idea or the concept of the cross being connected to new life and great joy and God's plan being fulfilled was completely absurd. That's not the symbol of the cross at all. It's the complete opposite. But the idea that no possible good could possibly come from the cross was based on human logic and understanding. It was based on a human perspective, human wisdom. And this is just what Paul wants to attack in his letter. And so he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, which is in here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19. But it goes back to chapter 29 of Isaiah. And in that section that Paul quotes from, Isaiah, as a messenger of the Lord, he delivers the Lord's word to the people of Judah and it 's a message of warning and judgment. The people of Judah are God 's covenant people. those are the ones that are trying to, to follow after God. And, and he says a number of things in that text. You can see it up there on the screen if you want to look back into chapter 29 of Isaiah about how they are just basically giving lip service to God, but they're not actually following through with it. In the context of this story. They want to make a military alliance with Egypt that will give them a sense of protection against their enemies. And this is the plan that they go with. They like this plan better than obeying the law and trusting God to protect them from their enemies. So what's the point of referencing this passage for Paul? Well, Richard Hayes, who's a commentator here on 1 Corinthians, he says that Isaiah's point is that God talk is cheap and the god's actions will shut the mouth of the wise talkers. In a sense, Sophia, wisdom will be no more. The wisdom of the wise will be destroyed. And this is really the theme and the point that Paul seems to want to make. So over the next 6 verses, Paul sets up a number of contrasts to illustrate what he's talking about. But his greatest attack is against wisdom. He uses the word wisdom 7 times in these verses, and the word foolishness appears 4 times. Instead of being embraced as the life-saving power of God, the message of the gospel is being received as foolishness to the Greeks. In the mid-1980s, an author by the name of Leslie Newbegin wrote a book called Foolishness to the Greeks, which is where I I borrowed his title for this morning's message. And I have not read the book myself. I've heard it referenced to many times uh, I picked it up and it looked like I'd have to be a lot smarter than I am to, to read all of it and to understand all of it. But the, the short story is, is that Newbegin was a missionary to India for 40 years. And as he, he uh, did his work as a missionary, as he thought about what it means to approach a culture with the with gospel message, with a different language and a different context, he began to think about the Western world, the world that you and I live in. And he asked the question of what would it mean to confront this culture? the North American culture with the gospel, the gospel that we read about here in Paul's letter. And essentially, this is exactly what Paul is doing to the people at Corinth. He's trying to say, this is the difference that the gospel message means to you in the way that you think, in your culture, the way that you live. And he's saying the foundation of the Christian faith is the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the church at Corinth finds themselves quarreling and struggling through a whole bunch of challenges. And as Paul points him to the message of cross, the very foundation of the faith, he recognizes the fundamental problem that these people have to the message of the gospel. Both the Jews and the Greeks have an issue with what Paul is trying to sell them, perhaps. So maybe Paul does have some pretty good skills as a salesman because he recognizes why they aren't buying. I find this part in Paul's letter to be some of the most revealing and inspiring words in the entire Bible. Listen to what Paul says. I'm going to read it again, uh, beginning in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews And foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's strength, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Our challenge to you for the week, our Bible memory challenge is verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, as someone that grew up in the church, I've heard this text, I've heard that verse many, many times in my life. I've read it myself, I've quoted it myself, I'm preaching on it now this morning. But I've never really thought much about why. Why was the cross a stumbling block to the Jews? Why was it foolishness to the Greeks? What was the problem? Why were Jews demanding a sign? Why was it such a problem for them? Well, miraculous signs were tied to the Jewish idea of what the Messiah should be. They had expectations. They had thinking of who the Messiah, who the Christ, who the chosen and anointed one of Israel would be. How he would function, what he would do for them. And as the anticipated deliverer and savior of the Jewish people, they expected the Messiah to act in similar ways to their other celebrated leaders. They figured they would be freed from oppression. And remember, at this time when Jesus arrives, they are being ruled by the Romans. The Jewish people are, in a sense, in captivity. They they feel like, uh, like aliens in the land that they are currently living in. Uh, They figured that they would govern themselves once again. So the Messiah would somehow leave uh, some sort of of freedom parade, uh, maybe overthrowing the state, somehow providing them what they once experienced as God's people, being freed out of Egypt as Moses freed them. They figured that they would experience the joys and the songs of their forefathers. So the Messiah would certainly have to be a man of great strength. He would show himself to be a worker of God's miraculous signs. This might be why Jesus on many occasions was asked by the people to give them a sign. Prove yourself, Jesus. Do something to help us believe in you, but do it the way that we want you to do it. And there's a number of cases in the gospel where Jesus is specifically asked, what's your sign? Show us a sign. But Jesus doesn't give them a sign. Instead, Jesus gets himself crucified. Now, this is a major obstacle to the Jews. Not only did Jesus miss their expectations as a Messiah, but he ends up being killed on a tree. And this gives them a different sign that came from the law. According to the law, anyone who's hung on the tree is under God's curse. So you have the most celebrated leaders in Israel's history being honored when they died. Men like Abraham and Jacob, Moses and David. And then you have Jesus, who was scorned and rejected and hung on a tree. We can see how that might be a bit of a stumbling block to them. Now, the Greeks, the Gentiles, they had a different issue. But just like the Jews, their issue was rooted in their heritage and in their expectations. The Greeks looked for wisdom. They loved knowledge. They loved reason. Uh, they, They loved logic. They gave high praise to people who could speak in eloquent ways. And Richard Hayes' commentary, he says that the praise given to first century orators was probably similar to what our society gives to pop stars and celebrities. And this might be why Paul is not very popular to some of the people in Corinth. His speaking skills apparently aren't all that strong. And that was a big deal to the people in Corinth, to, to the Greek people, because wisdom was loved so much, this pursuit and enlightenment of knowledge and, and intellect, that wisdom was almost functioned like it was a god. Those who had a greater amount of wisdom and insight, those who had been enlightened, they were thought to be more spiritual, more godly, more equipped and powerful. And if something could not be explained, if reason could not be found, then ideas were often dismissed as rubbish. Which is why the message of the cross and why Jesus himself presented them with a problem. As Richard Hayes says, Christ should have been a wise teacher of philosophical truths. But no, God has blown away all reasonable criteria. The Christ instead is a crucified criminal. So while the Jews and the Greeks are each hung up on different issues, they actually share a common struggle. Here's what commentator Gordon Fee says about their situation. He says, thus the Jews and Greeks here illustrate the basic idolatries of humanity. God must function as the all-powerful or the all-wise, but always in terms of our best interests, power in our behalf, wisdom like ours. For both the ultimate idolatry is that of insisting that God conform to our own prior views as to how the God who makes sense ought to do things. From what I can tell, it appears that the Jews wanted to see the Messiah based on their own terms. And the Greeks wanted to understand the Messiah based on their terms. But the Messiah didn't reach either one of their expectations. So the cross becomes a stumbling block for one group of people, and it becomes foolishness for another group. But the question is, and this is really the most important question as we look at this text, what's your reaction to the message of the cross what's your neighbors reaction to the message of the cross we were to take newbegin's assignment of saying what would it mean for our culture and our lives to encounter this message of the cross what's our reaction what's your co-workers reaction what obstacles does the cross present to our culture and our situation what's your reaction And by reaction, I'm not just talking about your feelings about Christ being crucified and your thoughts about that specific event. I'm talking about the message of the cross as a way of life. Remember, Paul says that the message of the cross is the power of God for those who are being saved. What's your reaction to the message of the cross as a lifestyle? The idea that God uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. The idea that God uses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. The idea that no one can boast before the Lord because his foolishness is wiser than our wisdom and his weakness is stronger than our strength. What's your response to the idea that instead of Jesus making everything in your life a little bit better, which is kind of what it sounds like everything is intended to make our lives a little bit better based on what we hear around us, What's your response to hearing that Jesus actually wants to weaken you so that you have to depend on his strength? How does that sound? To me, that sounds like a pretty major roadblock. But it also sounds like the very message of the cross. I find the cross quite uncomfortable. I find that image quite difficult to grasp. It's hard to think about. It's graphic, it's violent it's hard to accept. But what's even more uncomfortable than just that event, just that image and that picture and that thing that that we often comes up in our mind when we think about that is thinking about the type of life I would need to live if I was really going to follow the man who ended up on a cross. I'm tempted to turn the cross into something that's comfortable instead of accepting it for what it really is. When I'm honest with myself, that's really my stumbling block. That's my foolishness about the cross. What's yours? Jews wanted signs. Greeks wanted wisdom. But what do you want? What are you really hoping God will do for you? What are those expectations that you have? When you experience disappointment with God, what is it that you really want? So Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians but part of me sees Paul at a nice office in a car dealership. And he's at a desk, and the office windows has a whole bunch of glass because I think this somehow communicates full disclosure and honesty. And he's not surrounded by one person or a couple or a family, but he's, he's surrounded by a whole group of Corinthians, Jews and Greeks. And everyone's looking on the table where the, the offer sheet is and the pen. And they're waiting for Paul to do his thing. They're waiting for him to negotiate. They're waiting for a compelling reason. And it's Paul's time. This is what he gets paid for. It's time for him to turn up the charm. It's time him, for him to use eloquent language. And he knows that some of them want signs and some of them want wisdom. But Paul in this moment is unwilling to yield because this would compromise the very integrity of the gospel it's as if paul says i know you want visible proof of a powerful god but let's let's forget about miraculous signs for a moment i know some of you want rational proof of an intelligent god but let's forget about philosophical answers for just a moment we preach christ crucified it might not make sense to you right now but it is the truth of the gospel And it is the power of God for those who are being saved. Now, signs can be a gift. And God provides them to us at various times in our life. Sometimes for very good reason, it seems. Sometimes they completely surprise us. Wisdom can be a gift. And God provides us with understanding many times. And often, we are left to wonder. But signs and wisdom are not the substance of our faith. And when we put too much faith in them, we become lost. The cross is the foundation of our faith. We preach Christ crucified, no matter how unpopular or how difficult this message may be. I'll refer to Gordon Fee once again. He says, Paul's concern here is not so much on the people being able to perceive the cross's wisdom, but on the actual effective work of the cross in the world. And what is that work? What is that effective work of the cross? Well, it's the power of salvation. And when we encounter it, we will experience Christ as the wisdom of God and the power of God. We preach Christ crucified. And his kingdom is not a matter of signs or of wisdom or of boasting, but of power. Rich, surprising countercultural power it's the power of the cross for all who believe let's pause and pray lord we want to declare this morning that for as much as we are wired and as much as we want answers and signs and and so many other things that may be on our list of agenda Uh, We recognize, God, that that is not always what will satisfy us. And so we want to express our trust in you. That it's the power of your gospel that is what truly will change our lives. And so, God, at the same time, we, we want to acknowledge that there's many of us that may be struggling with a question or a want or a need or a request. And so, God, in our urgency and our pleading of you to respond to us, I I pray that you would be merciful and that you would meet us with the power of your cross. It might disappoint us in one way, but I believe firmly, Lord, that the power of your cross is what will transform us and what will give us the very mind of Christ, which Paul writes about in the next chapter. Lord, I pray that it will be your understanding, your presence, and your grace that fills us this morning that we would marvel at the foolishness and yet the great wisdom of this story that you orchestrated to bring the very the, the, the humble nature of Christ, that he became our deliverer. And I pray that that would inspire and enable us to do likewise, to take on the very role of a servant in our world, recognizing that through our brokenness, through our weakness, through our foolishness, then we are strong in you. And Lord, now as we declare the message of your Christ through singing, uh, I pray, Lord, that it would be a time of absolute praise and adoration of you because you are the victor, Lord. You are the sustainer and the redeemer of our faith. And we give you praise and thanks for that today. Amen.